So uh, I cannot possibly overemphasize uh, or describe in words the uh, occasion here of dedicating the temple. Uh, what is truly fascinating is the Israelites have been out of Egypt for something like 450 years. They uh, were delivered from Egypt 450 years earlier or or actually more, about 500 years. And uh, they had never had a temple before. They had had a tabernacle, which was in essentially a tent and was carted around from, from place to place until it rested in, in Jerusalem uh, at the time of David. But uh, uh, this is the first temple and the, the temple was really everything to the Jews, uh, which eventually was really a problem for them. It was something uh, more important than even God himself. And so, um, uh, but, but it was established as something that uh, God gave them as a gift in order for the people, his people, the children of Israel to, to meet God. The amazing thing, of course, is that um, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, uh, you and I are now the temple of God. But And we've seen the description of the temple in all its splendor, just the meticulous detail. Everything's covered in gold, even the uh, even the floors uh, at certain places, I think, were made of gold. Uh, all a foreshadowing of what we'll see in heaven, but as well, just the value that you have in Christ uh, when you become a born-again Christian and are filled with the Holy Spirit and become the temple of the living God. So he's in the middle of this prayer. And we are actually, uh, it was an odd place to finish, but uh, we had gone over, we were over an hour and I decided to stop in verse 43. So we're in uh, verse 44 of chapter nine, rather chapter eight of first Kings, first Kings uh, chapter eight, verse 44. And so we'll pick it up there. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city, which you have chosen, and the temple, which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. So this is when the armies of Israel would be away and it would be a uh, wherever they were, were they would pray to, uh, uh, pray to the temple for strength. Verse 46, and when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy, far or near, Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those whom uh, took them captive, 
saying, we have sinned and done wrong, and we have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, who led them away captive and pray to you toward the land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear uh, in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive and that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people, Israel, to listen to them where, whenever they uh, call to you. For you separated them from among all the people of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought them, um, brought out your fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. So that was a mouthful, the end of that prayer. But um, here, uh, you know, sometimes when uh, the people of God, sometimes when you are praying, you're prophesying at the same time. This does happen. And that's what's going on here. Um, he, Solomon uh, is, concludes his prayer by saying, when they sin against you and the enemy takes them captive and brings them to a land of captivity, well, that would happen. Uh, that happens in about 600 uh, BC. The people of Israel were, um, the people of Judah were taken to Babylon and actually 100 years or 150, 100, 150 years before that, the northern kingdom, northern part of Israel was taken to Assyria, and they were in um, a place of captivity. And uh, indeed, when they were in the place of captivity, they uh, cried out to the Lord, uh, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, no doubt, knowing this prayer uh, calls out to the Lord. So something like, uh, let me see, so it was about four, three or 400 years after Solomon praised this, Daniel and Daniel chapter nine, he's in a place of captivity. The Jews have been uh, uh, taken, imprisoned, and um taken, I think, about 900 miles away to modern-day Iraq in the, uh, in the land of Babylon, and uh, Daniel prays, and he says in Daniel 9.16, O Lord, according to your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins, and for the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, 
Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolation, the city which is called by your name, for we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. That was Daniel's prayer about 400 years when he, he and others had been taken far away from the land of Israel. And within moments of this prayer, um, he was, it says, it says, while he was still praying, the angel of the Lord showed up, Gabriel, and gave one of the most astonishing prophecies in the whole Bible, if not the most astonishing prophecy in the whole Bible. He prophesied that there they would be going back, that the king would give uh, issue a, a declaration uh, for the rebuilding of the temple. But then in, he goes on after that and prays and gives an answer way more than what Daniel had asked for, which is the restoration of the people back to Israel. He actually tells them that Messiah would be coming and the specific date that he would be coming. He, uh, uh, he he told him he told Daniel about roughly 450 years. It, it's not roughly in Daniel chapter nine, but it's it's a, a period of of, uh, of weeks. Um, weeks each week was seven years, and prophesied the specific number of years and weeks and days that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem, Jesus Christ. And so, wow. Uh, that was some kind of answered prayer, but it's tied back in this very um, prayer in First Kings, where uh, uh, where the the temple's being dedicated. Solomon is praying, and he concludes his prayer with, "Look, God, if you ever take us away from this place, away from this temple, if we're taken prison in another land, and they pray, please, please, God." hear their prayer. Now, uh, um, a couple little notes about his uh, Solomon's prayer. In verse 48, he said, if they've been taken captive, verse 48 says, when they return with all their heart and with all their soul. You know, I cannot possibly talk enough about what godly repentance looks like. When you repent in a godly way, what does repent mean? turning away from whatever uh, kind of life you're living and turning to God. And godly repentance is verse 48, when you do so with all your heart and with all your soul, not like a half-hearted thing, not even a 90% thing. Well, I'm going to give God every, I know I've been in sin. I'm going to give him everything except this one area of my life. No, if the, you can only have an expectation of answered prayer when you are coming to him surrendered and repenting with all your heart and all your soul. Otherwise, when why would God answer your prayer and be an, an enabler of your sin, be an enabler of something that robs you of your joy, your sin? No, it's with all your heart and with all your 
um, soul. Also, um, um, we will be getting to our workshop on prayer eventually. And, uh, but one of the things to pray when you're praying to God is pray the promises of God and uh, pray them. And in verse 51, uh, in, in verse 51, Solomon is reminding God, he doesn't need to be reminded, but we kind of need to remind ourselves by reminding God of a promise that, um, or a promise of a fact that the people of Israel are God's inheritance. In Deuteronomy 9, 26 through 29, I believe the nation of Israel is referred to as God's inheritance. And he's saying, um, look, when your people have separated from you because of their sin, remember God, they're your inheritance. You, and you promise not to cut them away. They're your inheritance. Um, please answer their prayers and bring them back. So twice in verse 51 and 53, uh, the nation of Israel is called the inheritance of God. And so it's, it's, it's praying with impunity. In other words, it's like, God, this is where your inheritance, you can't forsake us. We're your inheritance. Please listen to us, God. And the, the, the fact that, it, that, um, that Israel is God's inheritance uh, is an amazing thing. And not only that, but the Bible says that you, Christian, are God's inheritance. Once you turn to God with all your heart and your soul, and you give to your life to Jesus Christ, believe, believing in his life, his work, and his death and resurrection, the Bible says that you're God's inheritance. Uh, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, uh, uh, Paul prays that for the, uh, for the church in Ephesus, that they would understand what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, what is an inheritance? Uh, we talked that talked about that back in Ephesians one. Well, an inheritance is uh, you know you sit around uh, after a person uh, passes and dies, they have a will, and inside the will it specifies what the inheritance will be of the remaining estate of the person when they died. In other words, if the person died with whatever, $50,000, the inheritance is specified who is going to get the inheritance. Oftentimes, it's the children or the surviving spouse. But think about it, Calvary Chapel. Think about it. The world is out there doing everything it can to build up their self-esteem. Um, and, of course, no one can build up their self-esteem enough to feel good about themselves when deep down inside they know that they're desperately lost and they're rebelling against God. But once you become a born-again Christian, you are the inheritance of God. Imagine that, that his inheritance, 
hit on his will it's it's written um uh rather on 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 you could say uh he, he doesn't god doesn't have a will in the sense that he'll ever die but um the fact that um what he inherited inherits after he does his good work in our lives in the life of the church is us he loves you that much that he considers you his inheritance. Now, that's self-esteem, Calvary Chapel, um, to know that God loves you so much that you're his inheritance. And so when you're praying to the Lord and he has you in a place of distress by his own good pleasure, nothing wrong with reminding him, God, I'm your inheritance. Please speak to me in this distressing situation that I'm in now. Rescue me from this distressing situation. I'm your inheritance. Reminding God who the reminding God of his promises to you and his promise. And this is more than a promise. It's just a fact. It's truth that you are his inheritance. And so um, we see that method of prayer in the prayer of Solomon. Verse 54 continues. Verse 54 says, and so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. Um, can you imagine the glory of this? The the top of the pyramid of the country, the king, on his knees before all the people crying out to God the longest prayer in the Bible. I mean, when that happens, you know you have good things coming for your country. And indeed, this was a time of great prosperity. But what a fabulous scene that was. Verse 55 said, then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying. So he finishes praying to God. Now he's going to turn around and, and there's thousands and thousands of people there. And he is going to bless them with a loud voice. Now, there were thousands of people there. It says he had a loud voice. Uh, George Whitfield, the famous revivalist who in the 1700s, uh, he used to speak to 10, 20,000 people in America and also across the sea in England. He used to speak to that many people. His voice was that loud. And so I don't know if Solomon um, had a voice that loud, but there were thousands of people. And what does he say to them? He says this, verse 56, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us that he may incline uh, our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep 
his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. This is, by the way, a good prayer for you um, to, to make to, the God, to, to God. Yes, he cares, just like we were talking about on Sunday morning, uh, story of the fish and the loaves of the 4,000 people. He cares about your needs. He cares if you don't have enough money to uh, pay the bills. He doesn't, he, 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 he cares uh, uh, about the fact that your job may be in the line or that you're unemployed. But supremely, here is a prayer for you to pray to the Lord. Verse 58, that he would incline your heart to himself that he would incline you to walk in all his ways, that he would incline you to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgment. He will answer that prayer. But Calvary Chapel, pray this in some way, shape, or form on a regular basis. Verse 59, and may these words of mine, with which I made supplication, be before the Lord, be near the Lord our God, day and night. In other words, the prayer that he just prayed, this longest prayer in the Bible, he's, he's basically saying to the people, may the Lord, may this prayer be before the, um, the, before the Lord, be near the Lord day and night, he says. And so we are told once in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 34, that Jesus is at the right hand of God who makes intercession for you. And then it says again in uh, Romans, I mean, Hebrews 7, 25, that uh, Jesus always lives to make intercession for you, intercession to God. Uh, our prayers are kind of feeble prayers. Jesus by, and the Holy Spirit perfect them and they go to God. It's a wonderful truth of the Bible. Verse 59 of 1 Kings 8 continues as Solomon blesses the people that God may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people, Israel, as each day may require, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be loyal to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as at this day. So he concludes his blessing there in verse 61. Note the important thing, Calvary Chapel, is your heart. It is not your outward behavior. If your outward behavior, if you were just doing things on the outside in the, as in sort of a religious way, thinking that they somehow satisfy God, that uh, ain't going to cut it. God wants your heart. He wants everything that you do on the outside be a reflection of what's going on on the inside. And so he says, let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord. Verse 62, then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So that is one massive barbecue. As I said, there's thousands of people there. Uh, in fact, there's so many that uh, this particular barbecue, barbecue we see in verse 65 goes all the way down to the brook of Egypt. 
that's just how many people there. This is this just gives you gives you an idea of how big the dedication of the temple really was. So, end of verse sixty three. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was there was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. So remember the peace offerings, unlike the burnt offering, a burnt offering, when you made uh, offered a bull as a burnt offering, the whole bull was consumed. There was nothing left to eat. Um, but a peace offering, uh, and again, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep, verse 63 is the, is the uh, peace offering. There was some of the offering, some of the sheep or the bull would be offered on the temple to the Lord as a, um, as a sweet savor to him. But then the rest um, was eaten by the offerer. It's almost like them having a meal. It was a fellowship between the Lord and his people. And so verse 65 says, at that time, Solomon held a feast and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God. Seven days and seven more days, 14 days. So what happened was, uh, what, what happened was the, um, I think we know from Second Chronicles that uh, seven of these days was the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, that was the third feast that every Jewish male, 18 or over, was required to go to Jerusalem each year to celebrate the feast, all which were a, why were they so serious about these feasts? Because they were a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Uh, but the Feast of Tabernacles was seven days. It was in the fall. And so the first seven days apparently were the uh, dedication uh, of the temple, but he extended it another seven days and made it coincide with the Feast of Tabernacles. And then on the eighth day, meaning the day after the Feast of Tabernacle finished, he sent the people away and they blessed the Lord, um, blessed the king and went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. They went to their tents, joyful and glad at heart. You know, 513 times the word joy or glad or some derivative of it is used in the Bible. Uh, God wants you in a place of gladness and joy, never at the sacrifice of his own word, um, but he is happy, just like you parents are happy when your kids are happy. He's happy when you're happy. But the, 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 the path to happiness and joy is always obedience. Now, will there be sadness, sorrow, and despair along the way? Yes. And God despairs with us uh, during that time. But um, such a high priority, 513 times, at least in the Bible, that word joy or gladness used, a high priority. 
Why? Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. That's why God prioritizes it. When um, we don't have joy, uh, we we don't serve the Lord with strength. And so um, that's why it's so important to always be pursuing our joy in the Lord. Doesn't mean we're going to have it every day, but we should always be pursuing it. Again, they went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. Uh, so chapter nine, let's begin chapter nine. And it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. So Solomon was an incredibly um, blessed man. Here, he, uh, he, he, the Bible says that the Lord loved Solomon. He appeared to him the first time. Remember when God said, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And he asked for wisdom rather than riches or power. And the Lord answered by giving them all. Um, here he is appearing for him, uh, to him again. And it's, it's key. It's a, um, you know, the Lord appears to him and the timing of this appearance is incredibly important. It's at the time of Solomon's um, greatest achievement of his 40-year reign, the building of the temple and the dedication of it. So the Lord uh, appears to him again, and uh, he says to him, verse 3, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, which you have built to put my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart, there's that word heart again, and in uprightness to do, to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and judgment, then I will establish a throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But, and this is really important, and this is why God shows up at this time, right after his, um, his crowning achievement, verse 6, but... If you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and this house which I have consecrated for my name, and I will cast out of my sight Israel will be a proverb and a byword for all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, why has the Lord, what is the, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will answer because they forsook the Lord 
their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. And so God is quick on this during this mountaintop experience to warn Solomon, don't trust in a building. Don't trust in the building. Don't trust in this achievement. Don't assume because you've done this great achievement that somehow I'm always going to stay with you regardless of whether or not you obey or don't obey. The importance is not the building. It's your obedience. It's your love for me. It's loving me and loving people. That's what's important. And so, uh, you know, we're going to see Solomon take a mighty fall. Uh, We will be seeing him take that mighty fall. But um, it won't be because God didn't warn him. And, uh, you know, so many times... Uh, I'll be counseling something, someone who fell into, into serious sin, and they'll say something like, you know, I don't know what happened. You know, I don't know what happened. It's just like uh, I, with my life, it's like, uh, you know, I, I just out of nowhere committed adultery or out of nowhere I stole this money or out, out, out of nowhere I punched this guy in the face, whatever. And and the fact of the matter is that's never true. They do know what happened because God, if they're a Christian, speaking of Christians now, God warned them. God always warns you. He always does. Um, Any stumbling that I've ever made in my whole life, I can look back before it and say, God warned me, God warned me, God warned me. Calvary Chapel don't despise the warning of God. He loves you. He will warn you. He, 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 listen to that still small voice and you will hear the warning. And, and that's why a fear of God is so important, which by the way, um, the fear of God never chases away your joy. It accompanies your joy. Um, but if you don't fear God, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. But the problem is, is sometimes when we have a, a, a tremendous spiritual achievement like Solomon does, we somehow think that we are immune to temptation, that we're immune to a backslide, that we're immune to stumbling and falling, because after all, I have this huge crowning achievement, so there must be something about me. No, that's pride, and uh, uh, that is pride, and it's pride comes before destruction. And so uh, here, God warns Solomon, please, 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 Solomon, just because you have built this crowning achievement, don't think that don't be lulled into a false sense of security please obey me obey me obey me obey me uh and so um eventually this uh again uh, uh, about something like um 300 to 400 years later this temple is going to be demolished because of disobedience 
but God always honors his word above his name. He honors his word and his promises about his reputation. And if the, if the temple has to be demolished and people from surrounding nations, verse 8, look and, have, and hiss and are astonished and it goes, look at what this terrible, how did this terrible thing happen? What kind of God is this? Listen, he honors his word above his name and he's willing to do that. And so, um, uh, you know, an interesting thing that uh, I forgot to bring up in chapter three, it says in verse two here. So we're going to just take just a small little pause and, and, and go deep with respect to an issue for a second. In verse two, it says the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. Now, remember at Gibeon, that was where um, uh, God appeared to Solomon and said at the very beginning of his reign and said, ask whatever you want and I'll tell you. And rather, and I'll give it to you. And he asked for wisdom. The interesting thing about Gibeon, it was a high place, which um, in the Old Testament, it, it was prohibited to, uh, to worship at high places. And in fact, verse three of chapter three says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father, David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now, here's what's fascinating. Notwithstanding the fact that it says that he sacrificed and burned incense at high places, which was specifically forbidden, um, or, or at least appears to have been uh, forbidden. At a minimum, frowned upon. It was appears to be forbidden based upon verse three that God clearly doesn't like it, and he doesn't. And, and the reason was in the high places before the Jews occupied the land. The, the pagan peoples would just go up to the highest place thinking they were closer to God and do all kinds of pagan rituals there. Um, but notwithstanding the fact that it clearly was not a, a place that God wanted Solomon or anyone else to worship, God answers him at Gibeon in a dream. And uh, there was a tabernacle at the time. There was a tabernacle. It was in Jerusalem. But Solomon forgoes that and goes up to this high place, Gibeon, not supposed to be there. I, it, it, it's, it's, it's not specifically forbidden um, at, at this time, but it's clearly uh, something, if you put all the pieces together, where people, Jews, were not supposed to go and worship God. That's what the pagans did. But nevertheless, God meets them there. And he gives them, and, and, and he asks them, ask me whatever you, you want, and I'll give it to you. I mean, it's an amazing thing that God is doing that in a place he's not even supposed to be praying. Uh, it, it, and, and, and really, he's, it, it appears uh, uh, of an act of either intentional or unintentional disobedience. Uh, uh, he, he's he's, he's um, appearing to him and, and asking him and telling him, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And, and what that really shows me is just the mercy of God, the mercy of God. And, and I think about, uh, I think about 
some of the churches uh, that people initially meet the Lord. I think of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and I'm not, um, you know, I'm not here to pick on the Catholic Church, but there is an, an enormous amount of distractions in that faith. Jesus says, I am the branch, I am the vine, you are the branch, abide in me. And yet um, the Catholic faith specifically permits, for example, praying to Mary and praying to saints, notwithstanding the fact that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. An enormous amount of distractions in the Catholic faith. Yet, it is a fact that God does sometimes, in his mercy, meet people there. Um, I've heard numerous testimonies of those who uh, really met God for the first time in the Roman Catholic Church. But the second time that uh, the Lord meets Solomon and appears to him in the vision is where it's in the temple of God. And so the point that I'm trying to make is that while God in his mercy may meet someone in the Roman Catholic church or in another church, which um, another church or denomination where there appears to be myriads of very significant issues it's unlikely, I believe, that the Lord wants a person to stay in that place. I'm not saying it would never happen. I can't say that because I'm not God. But as a general rule, it's unlikely that the Lord is going to want to, to, to a person who has found God in a place like the Roman Catholic Church, which, I, which again, very significant biblical error being taught in that church that he's going to want them to stay there and so same thing here with solomon solomon is brought from the high place where he apparently had a habit of going and god didn't let him stay in that place he actually he established a temple and that is where um, the Lord is appearing to him now. So, but the, the main point I'm bringing is that I tell you the mercy of God. God will meet people in, in places where we, in our very religious mindset, oh, God would never go into that church or that denomination to meet people. Uh, be careful. You didn't read 1 Kings 3 3, which specifically stated that Solomon was it was not pleasing or right for him to be in the high places. God met him in a high place. And so uh, it, it, God just wants to save people. His heart is to save people. And yeah, he'll go anywhere. He'll go into a Buddhist temple and save a, a person there. He's not going to want them to stay there, but he'll, he will go anywhere to save people. Why? He's a God of great mercy. And we really, as we grow in the Lord, the Bible says that God, whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. As we grow in the Lord, we will grow in his mind, a mind which is a mind of mercy towards all people. Okay, so with that, verse 10, 
says, now it happened at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the two houses that the house of the Lord and the, uh, the house of the Lord and the king's house, Hiram, the king of Tyre, and had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold as much as he desired. That King Solomon then gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. So you remember that at the very beginning of the building of the temple, um, uh, Solomon contacted Hiram, uh, and uh, who was the king up in Lebanon, who, remember, we talked about him. He's the man of whom it is said that Hiram always loved David. So Hiram had that, that relationship with David and then agreed to supply all the building uh, materials for the building of the temple. And he did so as well for, for Solomon's house. And it says that, um, uh, it says that verse 12, that Hiram went from Tyre to, uh, sorry, let me back up. Uh, it says in verse 11, that um, King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. So apparently as payment for the cedar, he gave him these 20 cities in the land of, uh, of Galilee, uh, which is in the northern part of, of Israel, actually where Jesus grew up. Verse 12 and 13, then Hiram went from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, but they did not please him. So he said, what kind of cities are these which you have given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Kabul, as they are to this day. And so Kabul means good for nothing. Uh, I tell you, I don't get this. I, I'm not sure why this is. these two verses were here. They confound me. Part of me wonder, wonders... Um, I mean, commentators say different things um, about this. They, one commentator said words to the effect, well, he's not really trying to insult Solomon. He's just saying, uh, you know, with, I, I, with where we are up in Tyre and Sidon, perhaps because they were seafaring people, these cities really don't suit us well. But he wasn't really, um, uh, he, he, he really couldn't, he wasn't really insulting them. I don't know. These these two verses have always confounded me why these are in the Bible. Perhaps this is the beginning of Solomon's decline. He's um, we, we are going to see him declining eventually, but that's unlikely given um, the prayer that we just, I mean, the, the word from the Lord we just saw at the beginning of chapter nine. Not sure why, a very unusual verse. What's even more unusual is that verse 14 says, then Hiram sent the king 120 talents of gold. It's like, wait a second. He just said he didn't like the cities. Why is he sending him 120 talents of gold, which is a lot of money, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, it was, um, let me see. Yeah, 120 talents would have been something like 8,000 pounds of gold. I, I, that's a lot of money. I don't know what to say other than perhaps there. Uh, one commentator says that 
uh, notwithstanding the fact that he didn't like the the area of the cities, it was a big chunk of land and he had to also make a payment for it. So uh, eventually, God willing, um, the Lord will give me more insight into those verses. If you have it, you can be free to call me or email me. Verse 15, and this is the reason for the labor force, which King Solomon raised to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the Milo, which Milo is some kind of fortification, uh, stone fortification that was made. The wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire, had killed the Canaanites who dwelled in that city, and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So a little footnote there. Remember, Solomon's wife was the, one of his wives was the uh, daughter of Pharaoh. And Solomon built Gezer, Lower Betharm, Baleth, Tat, Tadmar in the wilderness in the land of Judah, all the storage cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots, cities for his cavalry, that's the horses, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and all the land of his dominion. So all those things that the labor force had built, it was just a description of all the things that his hired labor force had built. And who was this hired labor force, they are described in verse 20, all the people who were left, meaning left after the conquest, Joshua and the Israelite came in, um, and not all the people were pushed out. Some of them remained, but they went into forced labor, and it lists them, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not of the children of Israel. That is, their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel had not been able to completely destroy, from these Solomon raised forced labor as it is to this day. But of the children of Israel, Solomon made no forced labors because they were men of war and his servants, his officers, his captains, commanders of his chariots and his cavalry. So uh, there from 15 to 22, there's just kind of a footnote mentioning that the all these wonderful achievements um, that were built up were done by forced labor by the people who had been left in the land uh, who Israel had conquered. But of the children of Israel, Solomon made no forced labors because they were, oh, I just read that, pardon me, verse 23, others were chiefs of the officials who were over Solomon's work. So the, the Jews uh, were in the army, they were his uh, in his cabinet and his ministers, but verse 23 say they were also supervisors, 550 who ruled over the people who did the work, verse 24, but Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, which Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. Again, the Milo is some, it's, it's a little unclear what it is, but it appears to have been a fortification, uh, meaning a, a bulwark, a protection against enemies, a wall against uh, to, to, to protect the city. Verse 25. 
Now, three times a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar, which he had built for the Lord, and he burned incense with them on the altar that was before the Lord. So he finished the temple. So the temple uh, continued to be, throughout the reign of, um, of Solomon, a place where uh, Solomon went and publicly, before the people, offered sacrifices. Now, the tragedy that we're going to see is Solomon eventually would be offering sacrifices at other temples, foreign temples, pagan temples that he builds for his wives who were from other countries and other religions. But um, right here, uh, this is uh, kind of the pinnacle of Solomon's uh, life here, where he achieves this great monumental uh, accomplishment of building the temple. Verse 26, Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Elath on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew the sea, to work with the servants of Solomon. See, Hiram did come from a place um, which later became the Phoenician people. Uh, remember on our study of Mark, the Syrophoenician woman, modern-day Lebanon, uh, they were a seafaring people. And that could be why he didn't like those the cities in much into the interior, because they were more of a seafaring people. Ironically, there are very few references there's a couple, but a very few references to, uh, to, to Israel as a seafaring people. They were sort of people of the land. There's never really a, uh, a navy that was made or anything like that. This here is a business venture. It says in verse 28, they went to Ophir and acquired 420 talents of gold there and brought it to Solomon. And so... Uh, just at the end of chapter nine here, describing a, a commercial seafaring uh, uh, enterprise in which he would uh, bring gold from foreign land, pro probably also spices and things like that.